Hey, welcome to 9394, a music podcast. Thanks for joining me. I was really happy to have my buddy Sean come back onto the show. He's always fun to talk to. And he and I share this love for maybe not all things Boomer. And that includes Sting, which uh, Sean is a much bigger fan than I. But I definitely respect the man. And I was excited to be able to talk about him with my old buddy Sean. So check it out. friend how are you i'm good man how you doing i'm doing right here we go cheers you got your blue smurf you got my electric smurf <laughs> all right what do you have Trev? well i'm a michigander so i got a michigan beer i got the founders hazy all day oh nice. and i got in the wings when i finish this i'll have a griffin cloth screaming pumpkin nice i have some founders in the refrigerator as well man what do you got in the fridge uh, all day ipa yeah yeah so this is the hazy version of that yeah i actually bought that accidentally Oh, really? What is that? That's like 6.8, right? Not even. It's supposed to be like an all-day drinker. That's the idea. The one that I bought was a little stronger. There's a few variations on it now. Like this one here is only like 4.9 or something like that. All right. So the all-day is like somewhere around there. I just grabbed it quickly. I thought it was the all-day IPA. And it turned out to be something that was like 6.8. And I had like two of them. And I was like, wait a minute. What's going on here? <laughs> so it was like one of the variations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I also have, uh, you know, I've got some Sam. Oh, okay. So you're drinking a mixed drink and a Sam Adams beer? It's a Friday night, man. You know, I'm off work next week. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm not here to judge. I'm here to talk about Sting. I'm excited to talk about Sting with you, but before we get into that, this is your second time on the show. Yeah, man. We don't need to go through the whole rigmarole of how we know each other again, so I'll ask you a completely different question. Okay. What's the last movie you watched? I can give you that answer. So today, I took a personal day from work. Nice. Because I was on a radio show, Sirius XM. Oh, cool. Yeah, on a show called Revolution Road with Jimmy Mack promoting my book. Nice. And when that was over... Wait, hang on. Tell the people what the name of your book is and what it's about real quick, because you can't just not plug yourself if you're going to talk about your book. Yeah, right. So the book is called No Longer Subjects of the British King, The Political Transformation of Royal Subjects to Republican Citizens, 1774 to 1776. It's uh, coming out by West Home Publishing uh, in March of 2024. And it is about the sort of psychological or emotional transformation of subjects to citizens sort of like erasing this generation's old allegiance to the british king and sort of taking a chance on citizenship and becoming a republic of strangers awesome well i look forward to reading that for sure i can verify the man can write not just talk about music so did you watch a movie with your day off is that what you're saying i watched a movie and you uh you'll probably make fun of me a little bit it's a 2014 <laughs> movie called the pyramid uh and it's Sort of like a mixture between like the Blair Witch 
and that movie, The Descent. I love The Descent, but I don't know if I'm familiar with The Pyramid. It's sort of like a mixture of the two. It's, it has like okay. the camera footage, the, the shaky camera footage. Yeah, yeah. Found footage horror. I think it's the inverse of The Descent, right? I think The Descent, in my judgment, has an awful sort of very corny beginning. But the movie itself turns out to be really, really good and horrifying. Yeah, I love that movie. This one starts out that way, right? It starts out claustrophobic and horrifying. It has just enough mythology in there to keep you on board. And then, like most modern horror movies, they drop the ball at the end. Yeah. There's some good ones out there, but there's a glut of horror films, and most of them are not good. But the ones that are good, there's still some good ones. Um, the last film I watched was also a horror movie. I watched John Carpenter's The Fog from 1980. Have you seen The Autopsy of Jane Doe? excellent yes brian cox is always awesome and it is a scary horror movie which i don't say that very often no and it's so well done and it's again not to keep using that same term it's like claustrophobic like most of that film takes place in a single room yeah and it is outstanding did you watch the guillermo del toro's cabinet of curiosities on netflix no what's that uh last year actually he released it's like I don't know, 10 episodes or something. They're all like hour long short films by a bunch of different directors. And there's one that almost the entire thing takes place during an autopsy. I forget what it's called or what number it is, but you can find it. The only actor practically in it is F. Murray Abraham. And it is incredible. It is incredible. If you want an even spookier autopsy horror film than Autopsy of Jane Doe, whatever the fuck that episode is called is really good. Okay. I've got to check that out. You should. Yeah, man. All right. Let's talk Sting. What do you think? Let's do it. So how did you get into this album? Do you remember? Uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, Wait, I, I, sorry. I, what album are we talking about again? We should probably start there. <laughs> so we're talking about Sting's 1994 um, release, 10 Sumner's Tales. Okay. So how'd you get into it? So this is strange because obviously you're familiar with the record. Mm -hmm. It's the early 90s. You know, I'm 17 years old. Uh, I'm listening to all the Led Zeppelin I can listen to, all the Black Sabbath I can listen to, all the Alice in Chains I can listen to, all the Soundgarden and Nirvana. Like all, that stuff's all happening around me. Mm -hmm. And I think that Counting Crows record was out there too, which is odd because you don't listen to all this like pretty heavy, intense stuff. And I was also working at Friendlies. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I was working in, in this place called the Burlington Center. It's not even there anymore. Remember malls? Yeah, I do. They used to be a thing. He used to go there on purpose and hang out. Yep. Now there's just like these cavernous centers where nothing's happening except for like one store is still open. It's really depressing. It really is sad. It's like the 90s are evaporating before our eyes, you know? Not on this show. Not on this show. No, we're keeping up the fight, <laughs> man. Keep it together. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I worked in this, in this friendlies. I was a dishwasher and a waiter. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a radio station, like a satellite radio station, I guess, that they used to play. And it was always really awful, like adult contemporary stuff. Mm. But they put in the rotation those two songs, uh, Fields of Gold and If I Ever Lose My Faith in You.
which were singles. They were big singles at the time. Yeah, they were really big. And I remember thinking to myself, I probably shouldn't like this music because <laughs> it is total like adult contemporary music. And I'm jamming out to them bones. You know, I'm jamming out yeah. to Love Love or Jeremy or whatever. Right. But those songs are great. They're great songs. And also, yeah. I, I was a police fan. Mm. Now, I really didn't get deep into the Sting catalog until I met my future wife, Jackie. Her father was all on board with, with not just the police, but he was all into Sting. Yeah. But those two songs, they were remarkable songs. They were memorable songs. They were pop songs that felt like they had depth. Mm -hmm. And it was very obvious that everyone that was playing any instrument was incredible. And I, obviously, yeah, the more you learn about Sting, obviously that's just simply the case. He surrounds himself with world beaters. But that was my first exposure to those songs. Not to Sting. I knew Sting was in the police. Sure. At that point in my life, you know, 17-year-old Sean, who was in a shitty rock band, traveling around awful show to awful show on a Tuesday trying to sell tickets. Right. I had no room for the adult contemporary version of Sting. It's funny you'd say that because one of the few notes I made for this episode was adult contemporary. Yeah. Because like, what the fuck does that even mean? Is that like a, an adult film that's taking place right now? What does it even mean? Like, it's a completely meaningless phrase. The two words together really don't even make any sense. And I never really was a fan of this phrase, but I was listening to this album and I thought, oh, this is adult contemporary. That's what this sounds like. <laughs> I think that's a great analysis because I think I knew what that term meant in the moment. I never deconstructed it. Yeah. <laughs> what is it now? I don't. Is it Matchbox Twenty? I don't. I don't know what the hell. Is it. I don't think it even exists. I My mean, adult contemporary was like, you know, alternative and that kind of stuff is big in the '90s. But there's also all this other stuff still happening. Mostly people like Sting and Peter Gabriel and Seal, I guess, and some of these kind of people that were like making stuff that was like alternative adjacent. You know what I mean? But much more chill and geared towards boomers. And this is very much a boomery kind of album. Oh my god, I don't disagree with that. I've like tiered this record right there. It's absolutely, and I'm I'm not in the business of criticizing Sting. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a master craftsman. Uh, you know, we, we can have a different discussion about like him philosophizing about himself, but the guy is a <laughs> master at what he does. Sure. There are probably three songs on that record. If we're just looking at Ten Sumner's Tales, mm -hmm. I would put his bottom shelf. Bottom shelf liquor. Okay. And then there's a couple songs on there that are absolutely like middle shelf and i think the bulk of that record though like seven of those songs are top shelf that album could be the one of the most solid eps ever released or it could be a sort of like really good diluted album There is 12 songs on this album, and yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you that there's a few real big duds on here, but the ones that shine, shine really bright. So with that in mind, what is your favorite song on this album? That's an easy one. I think Shape of My Heart is the best song on the record. Yeah? I love that tune.
Shape of My Heart is funny because it's one of those songs that I cannot hear it without thinking of Leon the Professional, right? It's one of those songs. It was the song that ended the movie, right? So like it was a big deal in the movie and that movie's like a big deal for our generation. Yes. Uh, is that where you first heard it or did you first hear it on this album? Well, I first heard it on the record. Yeah. There are two versions of Leon the Professional, right? There's the French version and there's the American version. Yes. Yeah, there's the Professional and then there's Leon. Yeah, so I saw the Professional 98 or 99. Oh, okay, a little bit later then. Yeah, and I had that record. Like, I had purchased 10 Sumner's Tales. By 96, I had the album. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so I, I was definitely familiar with the song. And I, I remember thinking to myself, long before I associated it with a movie, mm -hmm. I remember thinking to myself, that it really reminded me of that sting tune from the second record, the Nothing Like the Sun, or something like the Sun, rather. Fragile. It reminded me of a bit of fragile. Okay. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. So I never really got into this album. I definitely had, back in the Kazaa, you know, Napster kind of days, I had pulled a few songs from this album, quite a few songs off the first album. What's it called? Uh, Dream of Blue Turtle or something Dream like that? Blue Turtle as well. It's a great record. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I like those two a lot, but I never really like. There's songs of this album that I'd never heard until the last couple weeks or so. But one that I'd always liked was The Shape of My Heart. It's a good example of how talented he is at imagery and like weaving together themes within a song. Like, you know, it's pretty basic to like go after the suits of cards and all that kind of stuff. But he weaves a whole thing there, which I guess it's one of the summoner's tales. But I just realized there's 12 songs on this album, but there's 10 summoner's tales. My mind just got blown. Now, I thought about this and let me help you out here. The first song, If I Ever Lose My Faith in You, is called Prologue. So I guess you could technically not count it. And the last oh, song is called Epilogue, Nothing About Me. Right. So you have 10 tales and then an intro and an outro. Okay. I mean, that's why I'm rationalizing it. I'm not thinking of like uh, like Chaucer, right? Right. No, that's what I figured he was going for. And I thought like, well, there's some songs on here that aren't exactly stories. One or two. Like, Everybody Laugh But You is not exactly a, well, kind of a story is being woven I think there. they're all, I think he was going for stories, right? This, this yeah. record is coming off of the Soul Cages. Uh, and the soul cages was, was like him like exercising the ghost of his dad, right? Like his dad dies. Oh, okay. Like tremendous writer's block. He can't write anything. And when he finally writes, why should I cry for you? Oh my goodness. And he, so apparently when he wrote that song, it just opened everything up and he was able to write that record. Mm -hmm. That record was successful, but it wasn't successful the way that Ten Sumner's Tales was. Well, this is probably his most successful solo album, if I had to guess. This was a really big deal bigger than almost i mean i wasn't alive for a lot of the police stuff but it seemed like it rivaled that in terms of popularity when it was out in 84 or i guess that synchronicity came out in 84 i was eight in 84 mm -hmm. and that was big <laughs> it was big i'm just giving you my memories and they're obviously yeah. not infallible but i just remember everywhere we were wherever we were if i was at mcdonald's if i was at the mall if wherever i was with my parents king of pain every breath you take yeah. Wrapped around your finger. Yeah, you heard those songs everywhere. 
They were everywhere. It yeah. was the soundscape of probably a couple years. Yeah. And but at the time, man, like again, I'm a waiter. I'm a dishwasher. <laughs> in 93, 94, man. Right. And every seven songs is if I ever lose my faith in you. Seven songs later, it's you know the fields of gold. Seven songs yeah. later, rinse and repeat. And for me, my favorite song in this album still has to be Fields of Gold. kind of van morrison vibe almost to it it's very relaxed it doesn't really have the markings of a huge hit to be honest like it's hard to imagine someone getting up there and doing that one on karaoke or something but it's just such a relaxing lovely song it's the kind of song that like a father could dance with his daughter at the wedding with that kind of shit you know it's like just this lovely beautiful song it's strange how successful that song was in our like short-term memory popscape yeah right yeah it doesn't have a chorus <laughs> it doesn't you're right He's a refrain, but not a chorus. Right, but the hook is that verse. Da, 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 da. Like, yeah. Never be saying each verse that that's the hook. It's the beginning of the verse. Yeah, it's an incredibly simple song, but I guess that's part of its magic. Yeah, it's simple, but then we have to keep in mind those people who he's playing with, right? Yeah. Kaliuti's on drums. Dominic Miller is on guitar. I mean, he just has, I mean, he had always surrounded himself with world-class musicians. I mean, think about Andy Summers in The Police. When Sting and Stu Copeland are in their mid-20s, Andy mm. Summers is 36. Andy mm. Summers met Jimi Hendrix in a hotel room when Hendrix's manager mm. brought Hendrix over to the UK, and Andy Summers is in there. He had practiced his whole life. He's a master classical player, an outstanding jazz player. The guy can shred, and he ends up in The Police, where he needs virtually none of those skills. <laughs> he creates these amazing soundscapes. Like He's still like so creative and so technically proficient. And he's on this album? No, 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 oh, no. Oh, this thing's always been with these amazing okay. players. Okay. Now, Dominic Miller is on this album, but Dominic Miller, I mean, he's, he's not Andy Summers, but they approach the guitar in a very cool way. Like, I come from that Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath background. Riff, riff, riff. And guys like Andy Summers and guys like Dominic Miller, and even the, the guitar player that Peter Gabriel uses, David Rhodes, mm -hmm. those aren't those types of players. Like, if you weren't a musician, or you could even be a musician and be fooled into thinking that there were no guitar parts, because they just sort of blend in. Yeah, it's not showy at all. You go back and listen to that Fields of Gold tune, Dominic Miller, you have to look for him, but he's in there and it's beautiful. And he's actually driving the song in a lot of ways, but it's so melodic and kind of, it feels like finger plucking probably. Yes, yes. It is not uh, overt at all. And we walked in fields of pronounce the drummer's last name again can you say his name again it's Vinny Caliuta so this guy I looked him up today 
because I just had to know. Because you know how some people have like a face that you just want to punch? <laughs> so this guy's voice, when he comes in on St. Augustine in Hell as the voice of the devil. Relax. Have a cigar. Make yourself at home. Hell is full of high court judges, failed saints. We've got cardinals, archbishops, barristers, certified accountants, music critics. They're all here. You're not alone. You're never alone. Not here, not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, break's over. <laughs> I just like want to find out who this person is and punch him in the face. I know I'm probably supposed to hate the voice because it's the devil. And maybe it's because he's an American doing a British accent or something. I don't know. But there's something about the way he says that and the way he laughs. The break's over. Every time it comes out, I'm like this fucking part again. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's a shame? And again, I'm not in the business of criticizing anybody's creative decisions, but that's a good song. Yeah, it is. But I do not care for that part of the song. Oh, I, that I like part comes in and you're like, you have to look around like, oh, nobody hears me listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> like, why is this the choice that was made? You know, this is like, ah. Uh. Someone who's a, a notorious dick like Sting, right? <laughs> a tremendously difficult character to get along with. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? We're going to let this go. I mean, I guess that demonstrates how pretentious the guy could be, maybe. An auteur. No one's keeping him in check. That song also has like the longest outro I think I've ever heard. Like the longest slow fade. It's just like there's like a minute and a half of it like fading out. Like, okay, still going. Still going. And you would think if it were adult contemporary, they would recognize that we have less time. What is your uh, underrated song on this album? Uh, that's, this is a toss-up. I was wrestling with this one. My initial inclination was to say it's probably me, but then I remembered that's on the Lethal Weapon soundtrack, right? And there's even like a yeah. cut with Eric Clapton playing guitar, so it's got to be something the boy said. not a song that is on a, a movie it's, it's not anywhere getting any sort of accolades it's a great solid song it's even a song that sometimes i'll skip over yeah but when it's gone I'm like oh my god this is a really good one 
and it doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, I could see skipping it in part because of its place within the album. It's like three quarters of the way through, which is kind of a weird slump in almost every album. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like when you're not quite getting to the songs that are the big blowout. And it's kind of where often bands put in something kind of not middling, but kind of like placeholders almost. And um, the something the boys said, yeah, it didn't really stick out to me. So it makes sense to me that it would be your underrated at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I'm just speaking for me here. Mm -hmm. I would probably listen to it more often if it didn't. I think it follows shape of my heart mm -hmm. and it's clearly not shape of my heart uh, but if it led into shape of my heart then you have a little build right oh yeah then i'm less likely to skip it yeah instead it's the second to last song yeah yeah that record's over for me after shape of my heart again i really do like something the boy said sure i can live in a world where uh, nothing about me doesn't exist <laughs> that's on the bottom shelf i kind of thought um yeah. <laughs> i don't feel like i'm familiar enough with the album to have picked an underrated but i will pick a song that I feel like I really respect and that really grew on me. Cause when I first put this album on a couple weeks ago, when it came out, I'm like, well, there's my least favorite from this album. And then like, by the end of it, I was like, well, that's weird. And then like over the last couple of weeks, I've been like, oh, God, this song's actually really fucking good. Cause it hops from genre to genre. I'm talking about love is stronger than justice. starts off with like blues and then it's got this country chorus and by the end of it it's straight up like contemporary jazz or something it is all over the place and it shouldn't work but it really does yeah that's a song that had to grow on me as well because it screams like in the mechanics or don henry <laughs> which i love that shit <laughs> yeah, see, i just can't do it i can't do it but i think you know most of these songs even the ones that are bottom shelf you can find some good in them because there's master musicians. So somebody's doing something cool at some point in every song. Yeah. Whether the whole package is worth it, you know, whatever. But if you're in it for the ride, there's something going on. And that's kind of what pulled me in on this song was because, you know, Gordon, he's a storyteller. And this story of like the seven brides and seven brothers and that kind of typical traditional tale. But then he spins it on his head where he's like the villain that gets all of his brothers killed and doesn't give a shit about it. I was like, right. okay, that's kind of interesting. Then I started listening to it more and I'm just like, man, that jazz outro is really fucking cool. And I'm like, all right, I guess I went from thinking this was like the worst song on the album to being like, this is actually one of the ones I'm looking forward to hearing when it comes on in the space of a couple of weeks. If your introduction to this record is Fields of Gold and then you hear that that's on the same record, one of these is not like the other. <laughs> Yeah, there's some gear shifts back to back there. And it, um, just as, as a fun aside, it's also funny to me that one of my favorite songs is called Love is Stronger Than Death that came out in 1993 on one of my favorite albums, The Does. 
dusk. So it's just kind of funny to me that two songs in that year were talking about love being stronger than something. But anyway, that's the end of that connection. How about uh, <laughs> speaking of bottom barrel? What's at the bottomest of the barrel for you then? So again, we're talking about a Sting record, right? Yeah. So, so they're all good, right? Yeah. Craftsman. He's a craftsman. Nothing bad on this record. There are songs that I could, like, again, that last song, I could live in a world where I never heard that song, but I'm not angry that I heard it. What is the song on here that you do not like, or at least that is least good for you, in your opinion? There's two of them. Okay. Uh, She's Too Good For Me is not my favorite song on this record, and Heavy Cloud, No Rain is not my favorite song. Those are definitely bottom shelf on this record. Okay. But She's Too Good For Me, if you make it through that song, it has this incredible bridge. Would she prefer it if I wash myself more often than I do? Would she prefer it if I took her to an opera or two? I could distort myself to be the perfect man. She might prefer me as I am. It goes from this corny, like, fake blues tune Oh my with God. musicians yeah and it breaks into everything drops out and this incredible baroque chord progression comes in and suddenly you find yourself at an opera and then it leaves and it goes back to the other show oh yeah yeah, yeah. they, they bring you right. back in the garbage yeah they right. bring you back into it. it's like holy yeah. cow what is this like why not get rid of the intro and the outro and make this the song but <laughs> at any rate that part is there man and it is awesome it is awesome and you're right it's indicative of the fact that there is great craftsmanship going into the songwriting of this album and the performances on this album but yeah that's 100 the song i was thinking of that song like oh god something from the 90s or 80s when like it's almost like um like Billy Joel's Uptown Girl, whenever there's like a soft rock song from that era that is borrowing heavily from like Fats Domino and, you know, like Jerry Lee Lewis and that kind of shit, I'm just like, oh God, that's just like, oh, it just it just turns my stomach. <laughs> also, when you rhyme girl with world, you should be exiled. He also on this album rhymes most with choice. Oh, I was referring to Billy Joel and Uptown Girl. Oh, oh, my bad. I thought For anybody that rhymes girl with world, come on, stop it. The only thing worse <laughs> than that is rhyming like girl with girl or world with world. That's a new low. Here's my thing, though. She's too good for me. Bottom shelf, but mm-hmm. it has that bridge. So mm-hmm. my least favorite song on this record is Heavy Cloud, No Rain. one's another one that at first was like this fucking sucks and then uh, it did kind of start to grow on me a little bit only because like every time it stops every cloud no rain i just kind of felt the urge to do it along with him you know but yeah it's not it's not a good song <laughs> yeah that's it so my underrated is some of the boys said the bottom of the barrel in this record is heavy cloud no rain 
And that is not criticizing the playing. Every one of those players is incredible. Uh, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. That those are probably the two weakest on the album. And that last song, not that it's bad, but it just seems so um, tacked on. Like, who cares? Kind of like this is it's not it's very forgettable. Yeah. The, the only thing that I think that I find cool with that last tune is that Shabalong chorus. It's so off key. What, like these are his buddies off the That's street. Thing. I like that. Oh, okay. Tell me what you see, but you still know nothing about me. like sting you know that he just let those guys in the room yell that chorus <laughs> yeah you can tell <laughs> yeah under any other circumstances someone as meticulous as sting would never let that attic stuff survive yeah. that would be on the cutting floor that'd, that'd be gone it would be gone but they're his friends so it's different presumably it has a lot of fun feel you know so keep in mind i'm just trying to find some positivity here i'm just saying like <laughs> not the most cleverly crafted song yeah everybody sounds great on it and it's remarkable that he left in those questionable backing vocals. Yeah, let's get to Seven Days, because that oh. is a really standout song in the album that never was a single, as far as I know. It stuck out to me. So first of all, I think it's in, is it in five or is it in seven? I think Seven Days is in five. I have no idea. I'm not good at that kind of thing. Seven days was all she knows. Kind of ultimatum knows. She gave to me. She gave to me. When I thought the field had clear, there seems another suit appeared to challenge me. Oh, is me. She's too good for me, or, or, one of the, or heavy cloud, no rain might be inside. I know there are two odd time features. One of them's in five, one of them's in seven. Okay. So the, the verse is in an odd time. And you, you can always tell when a band is doing odd time the right way because you can't tell that they're playing in an odd time. Right. Okay, that seems counterintuitive, but keep going. Like, think about Led Zeppelin's The Ocean. Okay. That's in five. Uh, another band that does it, like Soundgarden's Outshine. Bum, bum. That's a non-time signature right there. And, and they, they do it so smooth. Never notice. Yeah. It was a single. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Uh, so you, you have that with Seven Days and then the chorus. Is, oh, my goodness. The chorus is beautiful. And I really love, at the end, that refrain where he drags in those lyrics from every little thing she does is magic. Yeah, that's always cool when musicians kind of throw back to their own stuff. It's kind of like world building in a musical sense. Yes, it's almost like part of the, like, what is it, the, the Spider-Verse, right? Or the universe or whatever. Something like that? Yeah, that song is absolutely an underrated Sting song. The chorus is absolutely beautiful. It's definitely right under, like, Fields of Gold and Shape of My Heart. 
for me. It is a really good song, and it's funny. It's a funny song. I really like the comedy of that song, where it's just like, I need a beer. I'm not going to play Scrabble to win her heart. There's some really funny kind of like lines in that song. Isn't there that he's six feet ten? Isn't that in there as well? Yes, it is. That's a callback to uh, Can't Stand Losing You. Oh, is that is there a reference to Can't Stand Losing You to a six foot ten guy? Wasn't gonna kill me, but he's six feet ten. Oh shit, yeah. you're right. <laughs> That's in there as well. That's funny. Yeah, okay. He's plagiarizing himself twice. He's building on things. <laughs> yeah. Great though, great song, and still a solid record. It's not my favorite solo record. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel about the one that came out after it, that Mercury Falling record. I never even heard it. It's great. To me, it's great. Uh, but that's really about where I stopped. There was some really good stuff on Brand New Day, but that Sacred Love record lost me, and I haven't listened to anything since like 1999 or 2000. Some guys just kind of start to lose it, I guess, as far as songwriting goes. You know, you can only be so productive for so long. And I say that, of course, without having heard his stuff. Maybe it's amazing. I don't know. But in my experience, like a lot of people kind of start to... You know, it's hard to keep up the ghost. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What song do you want to use to go out on this episode? Probably me. Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great song, and we didn't really talk about it much. That's one of my other notes on this album, is that, you know, there's jazz, there's rock, there's country, there's blues, and then you get to, it's probably me, and I'm like, is this fucking rumba? What is this genre? Calypso? What is this style? It's almost like Girl from Ipanema kind of underneath, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's like Girl this from under- Ipanema in like a minor key. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like this dark version, but because it's got this like cocktail lounge kind of vibe to it, but it's actually kind of subtle the way it's done. It's a cool song. It's like the anti-crooner, right? <laughs> yeah, and it definitely, there's a lot of his stuff like we said with She's Too Good For Me, there's stuff that you can tell he grew up listening to, but sometimes it doesn't work like with that song, but with It's Probably Me, it works. Did you uh, ever get a chance to see him live? Oh yeah, I've seen Sting three or four times. Three or four times, that's awesome. Last time that I saw him, it was a live performance, I'm sure you heard of this tour, where Sting and Peter Gabriel played together. Dude, was that in 2016 in Camden? Yeah. I was there. Me too. We were both there. That's so funny. Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> what I liked about it is it's like Sting didn't play and then Gabriel played or vice versa. They played yeah. at the same time. Together. There were songs that were Peter Gabriel's that Sting sang and then songs that were Sting's that Peter Gabriel sang. Yes. Dude, and we knew each other in 2016. Why didn't we talk about this? I don't know. We never talked about it. I'll tell you why we didn't talk about it because they gave us too much goddamn reading. That's <laughs> in, in grad school. Yeah. <laughs> how, how are you going to talk about things when you have a thousand pages to read each week? It's not an exaggeration. Yeah, it's true. You know, that was like a big outdoor venue in New Jersey that in Camden that uh, we could have easily been there together. We could have hung out together at that show had we both known that we were at it. Because I remember being very annoyed with the crowd at that show because I'm finally, finally fucking seeing Peter Gabriel. I'm not going to sit on my ass for that. I'm going to get up and move my goddamn body, you fools. And like everybody behind me was like, (laughs) I don't fucking care. (laughs) They're the kind of people who listen to adult contemporary. They don't want to get up and move their ass. Clearly, they brought their blankets to lay them out in the grass. I was kind enough to move the front of like the very front of the fence of like the lawn area. You know what I mean? I'm going to send you some pictures later on because I had actually had really good seats at the bottom of that place. Oh, did you? Yeah. Like, like those guys were, you could like ding me for 10 or 12 feet here, but like I think they were like 50 feet away from me. That's incredible. Yeah. I would say for me, that's one of my all time best shows in my life. And I've been to so many shows, but I was just talking about this with people recently. We were talking about best shows and that came up. I mean, no opening act. Just these two fucking legends sharing a stage, singing songs from the police, singing songs from Genesis. You know, it was so fucking cool. Did they open up with the rhythm of the heat? 
Yeah, they opened up with the rhythm of the heat, and then they went right into If I Ever Lose My Faith in You. And I will say, if you'll permit me a moment to criticize that show. Oh, I will, but I won't agree. <laughs> I think you're going to agree with me. At one point, these two characters with some of the deepest catalogs in modern pop music. Yeah. They were like, you know what we got to do? We have to take five minutes or six minutes out of this amazing short period of time that we have together and play a Bill Withers tune. Oh, what song did they cover? I forget. Um, Ain't No Sunshine. Was that, is that what they played? Ain't No Sunshine? I'm nothing that song. Yo. But yeah. you could have played another Sting song or another Gabriel song. I wasn't there to see Bill Withers. I, yeah, okay. I mean, I don't remember being irritated by it. I don't remember it that well, to be honest. Oh, I was so angry. <laughs> it's the Rock, Paper, Scissors tour. They need to put out, I don't know if they have, but they need to put that shit out on an album because, like, you know, they had to have recorded that. Of course. What a unique tour. But, yeah, I guess I could agree with you because, I mean, some of their song choices were a little bit weird, like... The one Genesis song they played, I can't remember what Genesis song it was. It was a deep cut. They kind of did a few songs where I was like, okay, that's, can we play more off us or so? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I, I want to hear in The Blood of Eden, you know? Right, right. That's my favorite Peter Gabriel album. And the only song they played, I think, from that album was Steam, I believe. But yeah, I love that album. Love to be loved and Blood of Eden were options too. Someday I want to fucking do that album on this show. If you ever want to do that album on that show, I know that album inside and out. Oh, dude, let's just do that next. How do you feel about that? Oh, my God. Because I love that album, and I want to talk about it so badly. That would be great. That album influenced me in ways that I'm still learning about. I'm still learning how that, that album influenced me. I'm going to stop there because I'm just going to turn this whole thing into being about Peter Gabriel, and let's save it for next time. I've been wanting to find someone to talk about it with, and I found you. I'm excited. Good. Okay. So we both are at that show. It was incredible. You saw him some other times, Sting? Did you ever see him like with anybody else that was cool, like Peter Gabriel? No, no, I saw Sting. Oh, no, that's not true. Oh, my goodness. I saw Sting once with Annie Lennox. Ooh. And she opened, and I like Annie Lennox. Yeah. They're more now than I liked her then, but I was like, of course, Annie Lennox is amazing. There was no comparison that night. She was better. Oh, my God. It was, I think that something was happening with the sound. Oh. You couldn't hear Sting very well. His voice was sort of muffled, but mm. she was so powerful. What vocal impediment was going on with Sting could not restrain Annie Lennox. She was. <laughs> mind-blowing. It was the only time that I've ever thought to myself, that person sounded way better than Sting's band. And then again, (laughs) you know that the Sting's band didn't sound bad. You know they didn't play poorly. Yeah. Had to be some kind of, I don't know if Annie Lennox brought her own sound person and Sting used the person that was at Camden Camden again. When I saw Sting during that brand new day tour, you know, that um, Desert Rose song. Okay. I think at the old Spectrum or or whatever became the Spectrum. I've seen him three or four times. Anything else to say about Sting or this album before we move on to the last unrelated question? No, I I think that this album is definitely worth revisiting. I hadn't listened to the full album in quite some time. And then when we hooked up and I started thinking about the record, I was like, well, I should probably listen to it three or four times to get ready for this. I remembered some of the songs on the album, like St. Augustine and Hell. I was like, oh, that's got to be in clunker. It's not. Except for that middle bit, but yeah. A moment ago, you were talking about one of those songs was jazz and rock and this and that other thing. The piano part that unfolds under that ridiculous... Yes, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. That sounds like Dream of the Blue Turtles to me. Mm-hmm. That first Sting record where he has all those jazz musicians. He, has, he stole Miles Davis's bass player for that first record. Miles never forgave him. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And then there's also the part in that song that it's predicting that Mercury Falls record, that country record. So I think that that song is a sort of transformative moment where Sting is looking to the earliest part of his solo career and he's looking to the future. 
And then he let some guy come in and pretend to be the devil. I, I <laughs> All right. So you and I are both historians. You're a tick older than me. So I know that like me, you grew up watching the sitcoms that our parents grew up watching because that shit was all that was available during the day for the most part. And I thought, well, this is a pretty boomerific album. And I say that as someone, you know, I love boomer shit. I'm not anti-boomer. I'm anti like, you know, how they fucked the economy and, you know, elected Reagan and whatnot. But I mean, boomers are sociopaths. As far as the pop culture goes, there's some really great stuff. And so I want to talk to you about Nick at Night and what they had available to watch in the year 1993. All right, let's do it. I'm going to name some shows that were on the air. This might kind of take me a second while I kind of scroll through this. So in alphabetical order, I'm just going to name some of the shows that were available to watch on Nick at Night in 1993. Anything that stands out to you, just give me a shout. So for instance, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I remember watching that at my Nana's house all the fucking time on Nick at Night before I got cable. Hitchcock presents one of the scariest episodes of all time. I was thinking about this show earlier when we were talking about the autopsy of Jane Doe, talking about the new Netflix series. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and I always will remember, I, I think I was in fourth or fifth grade, and it was an episode about a girl in prison who befriended someone in the prison who got, you know, coffins ready for burial when a prisoner died. And she wanted to escape the prison. And she befriends the guy. The guy says, the next time that the bell rings, that's going to mean that someone died. I want you to jump into the coffin Mm -hmm. and I'll take you to the ground and bury you. And then I'll come back and I'll dig you up. Do you recall this one? No. Oh, my God. So the bell rings. A prisoner dies. She runs into the morgue area of the prison. She jumps into the coffin. They carry the coffin into the grave. They bury it. And the rest of the episode, like the next. She's in the box. She's in the box. And she's waiting and the air is getting up. It's just her face. It's like she's starting to get claustrophobic. So she can't breathe. She finally pulls out a lighter and she lights the lighter to see who's in there with her. And it's the guy who's supposed to dig her out. Oh, no. <laughs> Man, I was a kid and I saw that. I couldn't sleep for days. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That show really, it put its hooks in me as a, as a young kid too. Oh, yes. I actually got cable at my house in 1993. So I did watch some of this other stuff. I did not watch the Dick Van Dyke show, which would have been an option at the time, or the Donna Reed show that would have been an option at the time on Nick at Night. Dragnet, I guess, every once in a while. Get Smart. Did you watch that? No. No. Green Acres? No. I watched that some, but not so much in 93. Lassie, which no one watched that. Looney Tunes, everyone watched that. So it looks like so far the main winner for you is Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Oh, yeah. Here's my big winner from this era, which is uh, Mr. Ed. Oh, God, yeah. Hello, I'm Mr. Ed. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. Mr. Ed was the first show I ever binged, and I remember like we got cable, we got Nick at Night like in '93, and I was like, I discovered Mr. Ed, and was like, oh my god, I love the show. And then they were gonna pull it off the air like that same time, you know? They were like, okay, but we're gonna play every episode in a row before we do that. So like I was like, I'll never be able to see Mr. Ed again, you know? I'm a kid, I don't fucking know. And so I sat down and I was like, literally 
literally watched almost, you know, other than sleeping, I like watched every single episode. Just, I think it was like over winter break or something, you know. I watched like every single episode of Mr. Ed. I even ordered this thing that was called Mr. Ed's Feed Bag. It was like a duffel bag that was like shaped like a feed bag with Mr. Ed's face on it for some reason. I carried that around for like years. I was really about Mr. Ed for some reason. I don't know why. Imagine now you're a little older. When did that show come out? The, the late 50s, early 60s? Yeah, yeah. It's post-World War II, it's the Cold War, and someone's like, look, I've got a great idea for a show. Talking horse. And it That's had it. the green light on multiple levels. Like, someone finished the idea, someone gave encouragement to the idea, someone gave funding to the idea, someone gave airtime yeah. to the idea. Multiple seasons of a horse sticking his head out of a barn. That's it. Just talking. Standing there and talking. Yeah, it's like, Mr. Ed reminds me of, uh, remember that show Home, uh, not Home Depot, uh, Home improvement. Home improvement is like imagine like the neighbor. The neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks like that's. I mean, there's a couple more here. Um, let me see. Ah, the Partridge Family, Patty Duke. Hated that stuff. Yeah, I hated that shit too. I used to get locked up at my grandmother's house. My parents were really young. My mom had me when she was 20. Yeah, and I used to get dropped off at my grandparents' house, and we would watch like Golden Girls and Maud. I love the Golden Girls, actually. You know what my show was back then? Land of the Lost. Okay, yeah, I could dig that. I loved that show. I was more of a dinosaurs guy myself because I was a little younger than you. But <laughs> oh, wait, 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 was that with the Earl? Uh, yeah, well, not the mama. You know, that was that was. Yeah, yeah, I remember that show. Yeah, it was basically all in the family, just with dinosaurs for some reason. And like less racism. And less racism. Uh, well, <laughs> satire that people are not getting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, Nick at Night, that era, and it wasn't even just Nick at Night. I don't know about you, but like growing up, especially during the summer, all the programming during the daytime was just all black and white sitcoms from when I was a kid. So like in the summers and stuff, we were just like, okay, I guess we're watching, you know, Bewitched. I dream of Jeannie. There's nothing else on. This is what we're watching. And it's kind of hard to imagine now, like nine-year-old kids being like, well, I guess there's nothing else I can watch. So I'm just going to dig into, you know, stuff from 35 years ago that has no relationship to me whatsoever. Yeah, so I have a nine-year-old. And if it's longer than 30 seconds, he doesn't get it. <laughs> I mean, he, he does watch the, like my boy, I took them to see the new Indiana Jones movie. Which is great. What Did you like it? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, but we watched all four of the lead up, uh, and then we went to the theater to see it. And, you know, that's an exception, though. I think that all my kids felt that their father was into it, you know? Yeah. But normally, it's like if they watch anything long, it's like an episode of a cartoon that they watched. It's like 11 and a half minutes long. Good Lord. I actually think we kind of benefited in, in some ways, not just from having life before the internet, but from kind of being exposed to stuff that was more adult than maybe we were ready for. Cause it's just kind of like, I don't know, growing up, I knew things that it seemed like were second nature to me then. And to everyone I knew, not just me, you know, that I talked to some of my students these days. I'm like, Oh, okay. You never heard of the house of representatives. All, all right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the case. Well, my friend, thank you for coming back on the show. We've established that you're going to come back on the show again. We'll talk about Peter Gabriel's Us. I'm very excited about that. Let's fucking do that. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on and talking about staying with me. Travis, it's always a great time. And my goodness, I cannot tell you how excited I am to talk to someone who is as intimate as I am with that record by Peter Gabriel. My goodness. Let's do it soon. Let's do it. <laughs> you can post it in a year from now. But yeah, let's do it soon. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. But it's probably I hate to say it
to again thank Sean for coming back on the show. It means a lot to me. Um, some episodes take longer to get out than others. And often it's because, as seems to be the case so often, I got sick. I started editing this episode and then got bronchitis or something. I've been pretty laid up and I'm sure I don't sound like myself right now. But this episode is long coming, so I don't want to hold it back any longer. I actually did a Google and... Uh, I'm like, how frequently do people get respiratory illnesses? Because this is like my fourth or fifth this year, but I guess it's like two to four times a year, you know, is supposedly the norm. So I'm on the top end of that, but it's the price of being a teacher. What are you going to do? Can't wait to have Sean come back on. We talked a lot about Peter Gabriel, so obviously we have a lot to say about him, and we will in that coming episode where we talk about the album Us. And also in the timeline that I'm currently living in as of recording this, Peter Gabriel just released his first new album in fucking like 20 years. And so I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about that. Also, speaking of what is currently happening, as I record this, I know that a whole bunch of good friends of mine are are getting together at a big show that I was really excited to see. Bear vs. Shark, shout out. And uh, I'm bummed I can't be there because I'm sick. I'm glad I can talk now. I couldn't talk yesterday, but I felt like, (laughs) you know, if I'm still wheezing and that kind of shit, you know, you go to a sold out show, you're going to get a bunch of other people sick. And that just isn't cool. Uh, As much as (laughs) I considered doing it in all honesty, it would have been really nice to go. But, um, you know, sometimes life disappoints and sometimes life brings you Sean McGee talking about Peter Gabriel's us in the near future. And it was great talking Sting with him here. If you want to come on the show and talk about an album from this era, you're welcome to come on. Just reach out to me. My email is 9394podcast at gmail.com. You can come on and do pretty much any album you want from the era that I haven't already done. I mentioned Van Morrison at one point on this episode. Also in 1993, he released the album Too Long in Exile. Now, I'm a really big fan of Van Morrison. Uh, Let me rephrase that. I'm a really big fan of Van Morrison's music. A huge fan of his music. And uh, this is an album that I never really got into, but this is interesting. Here he is re-recording the song Gloria from one of his earlier bands, Them. And he's doing it here with John Lee Hooker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now tell about my baby. Man, you she comes around. So if you're familiar with Van Morrison, maybe, you know, maybe you're like me and you're like, you like Van Morrison, but don't even really know the album, but think it'd be interesting to listen to it. You don't necessarily have to have some huge story connected with the album. Just, you know, come on and give me a half hour of conversation about it. We'll make an episode out of it. Um, Whatever album it is we talk about. I appreciate you listening. I apologize for sounding like I've been gargling hot lava. You all take care of yourselves. Mask up if you're sick. Avoid crowded places if you're sick. 
Uh, shout out to other teachers out there and other people on the front lines, the healthcare workers and customer service workers, everybody that's out there having to interact with lots and lots of people during this sick season. Take care of yourselves. Yeah, okay, thank you. Bye. Podcast with Travis Roy is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue.